and right now I'm in the, um, you know, Artsy, the big art website. They did an, their first NFT drop, I think, you know, a month or two ago. So they're now doing a second NFT drop for uh, Women's History Month, and I'm part of that drop. We just nice. did the Twitter spaces. The opening is tonight at Vellum LA Gallery oh, nice. uh, in Los Angeles on Melrose. And the NFT auction has started on for, uh, Artsy as well. Nice. And uh, actually in Vellum opening tonight, there's a 50 foot video wall of my glitch goddess <laughs> at the gallery. So if you're in LA, I mean, well, I don't know when you're going to air this, but- <laughs> One week from <laughs> today. Huh? One week from today. Oh, well, the Thursday. show will still be up, but catch it at Vellum LA on Melrose. And today I also did the Twitter spaces earlier for I'm part of the Women's History Month drop also opening today. Everything's happening today for uh, First Dips <laughs> curated by Sparrow, who's an OG crypto artist and one of the co-founders of WOCA, uh, Women in Crypto Art Organization. So I have a JPEG in that actually. And then last but not least, opening today, I'm also part of Fashion Week in the Metaverse in Decentraland. And so this is the first Fashion Week in, you know, the Metaverse. And it's going to apparently become a recurring annual thing. You know, so there's Fashion Week in New York, in Milan, in Paris, and then in Decentraland. Talking about NFTs and that's nifty. That's nifty. All the great artists they come to this place to talk about the crypto space and that's nifty. That's nifty. That's nifty. Your hopes for tonight's podcast are Tyler. Larry and Slime Sunday. Damn, that's nifty. Hello. Hey. How's it going? Good. How is it going with you? <laughs> good, good. I'm glad you reached out. Um, we didn't know a whole lot about you because we're kind of newer to the art space. You know, we've probably been in for since November of 2020, and you've been around for a while, killing it in yeah. digital art. <laughs> yes, I've been around for a while. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to um, let everybody know who you are? Because I don't want to butcher your name. Is it Marjan? Yes, it's Marjan Morada. Well, I'm I'm obviously a digital artist and an animator. Work primarily with 3D CG, and uh, I guess I'm known for my original and unique style of figuration and animation. I'm I mostly do fine arts um, animation, but I have a background in CG production. I was a production artist for many years. Um, and right now, I guess I've been in the NFT space since 2020. Um, and uh, I, I have, uh, as of uh, last week, close to 90 Ethereum in sales uh, of one-on-one um, fine arts 3D CG NFTs, uh, which I think is a big deal considering that my work isn't really uh, pop culture or uh, you know, illustration. It's, it's, it's sort of complex and it's demanding and it's provocative. So I think it's a real testament to the maturity of the NFT space and uh, the vision of the collectors who are uh, who are really supporting the work that I think sometimes the art world is not. 
So that's the short answer. Yeah. No, if you want me to give you much longer <laughs> answers, we can get into that. <laughs> that. That was good. I think we've done a, a, a good amount of looking into your background. I, I, your website gives some good insight to your kind of where you came from. And um, so were you out doing just like independent client work before? Um, yeah, well, actually, my story in brief is I'm originally from Iran and I lived through the, uh, you know, violent Islamic revolution in 1978. I'm actually, believe it or not, doing a uh, a healing trauma story about that in XR with Helium app. It's it's like this weird experiment with a, a brain link driven story interactivity. Um, so that's actually a commission I'm finishing up as we speak. Oh, wow. uh, but and, and right after this is over, I have to go back to anime. <laughs> I just took a break to put on makeup to do this. <laughs> and you know what? You did it just for us, too. And I can we don't see use, you did the same. Yeah, we we actually don't use the video, so you did that for us. Oh, I know. I, I didn't yeah. know. Had you told me, I wouldn't even have bothered putting on the eyeliner and the lipstick. But anyway, Sorry about that. Anyways, it's good because when this is over and I meet my husband, he'll be like, oh, look at well, you got dressed up today. All right. She's looking like the way she does it when she's working hard. But... Uh, <laughs> That's so, crazy how intertwined your work is with technology. And, you know, before NFTs came along, you were applying that in a lot of different ways. Like, yeah. what I, I looked at a couple of words that I just didn't even understand, like um, chronometric or GAN generated images. Like, yeah. I, I didn't even know what that was. And I had to dive a little bit deeper. And that that stuff is wild. Yeah. Well, you know, there's, uh, I guess, the chronometric sculpture stuff that you brought up is you know, I had to come up with a term for how I was animating because nobody else was animating like that. And, <laughs> and, and, it's, and nobody else still is animating like that as I'm repeatedly told. I think White Hot, um, White Wall, sorry, magazine uh, wrote a piece recently. I was doing the, the Freeze LA show, the NFT art show at Freeze LA with Rarible and Vertical Crypto Art. And they wrote about the show and, and they sort of talked about the work that I do is the definition of digital fine arts and the, the way it's, it's unique that there's really nothing else like it. So when I first came up with this style, I was like, well, what am I calling this? What, what, do, what do we call this? Because it's not straightforward animation. You know, it's not straightforward mocap. And, uh, and that's when I decided it's really a type of sculpture that's moving. And because it's in, and, and for me, my inspiration comes as much from fine art sculpture as it does from the history of animation. Mm. Um, you know, I always tell people that the more exaggerated moments in my style of animation is Tex Avery. That's straight out of Looney Tunes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm a huge fan of uh, Tex Avery. I think he was an artistic genius, uh, you know, in terms of the artist squashing and stretching. So I'm, I come from a, a background of both fine arts and also respect for animation. I studied animation. And, uh, and, and like I said, because I was a production artist, I respect the applied arts. So I'm not like a snooty fine arts artist that's just like, that stuff is crap. No, that stuff is fantastic. But I do believe there's a difference. You know, like if I'm doing a project for a client, I'm, my technique is very different. It's not about my vision. <laughs> you know, right. It's about the client's vision. And if I'm doing my fine arts work, there is no client. You know, it's my vision, it's my rules. And so I always say that I I I straddle the line. You know, I've walked both sides. I respect both sides, but I don't think they're the same. 
when you're when you're first creating art, what mediums were you in before it all went digital? I was originally drawing and painting um, as a teenager, and uh, I was uh, I was uh, actually pretty classically trained, if you may, because I was in a British education system and the art, their art program back then was quite rigorous. I mean, you had to do still lives every day. There was no way around it. And, <laughs> and your still lives had to be good <laughs> or else, you know, you, you would catch hell for it. So I, I sort of had uh, that kind of disciplined, you know, uh, upbringing, which I think is, is became very useful, obviously with CG. Um, so I was when I when I left Iran after the revolution and came to the U.S. Uh, I was a student at NYT when Albie Ray Smith, one of the teachers there, had created Images, the world's first paint program, on back supercomputers back then. So I kind of fell in love immediately, and I fell in love because I was trying to kind of. I think some of it was my way of coping with what had happened to my country of origin. You know, for me, escaping the horrors was was to sort of project all my idealism into futurism. And so I got into science fiction, I got into computers and that was my way of pushing away. Um, and, but it worked and it's, it's brought me till today. I mean, it's, it's like literally carried me. I mean, I still go to bed reading science fiction, you know? So it's, it's, um, it's, it's a way of, uh, sometimes I think science fiction is like the transcendental mythology of our time. You know, We've heard that from a couple of other artists. Yeah, I mean, two with. centuries ago, people would have been reading, I don't know, stories of saints or something. Yeah. In, in our world, it's about looking to the future and imagining a future of technology uh, and, and, and transferring all of our idealism to it. So for me, all of those things happened at the same time. And there was like another thing that happened is I realized I was good at computers and all my fellow classmates back then were freaking out over computers. <laughs> and I was like, why are they freaking out? This isn't that bad. And so I, I kind of knew I had a whatever, uh, you know, I, I had a knack for it. And, and I got to be hot shit with it at a very young age, for lack of a better term. And I like the way that felt. And also another thing that happened is, you know, my family kind of lost all their money. So I had no money and I had to become self-supporting at a very young age. And then I realized people were willing to pay a lot of money for that. So, um, and I, you know, I just didn't have like whatever it is that you're supposed to have to like wait tables or work in an office or do jobs that you hate. I didn't have that. Yeah. Like I like if I did those jobs, I would be like, OK, I'm going to go kill myself. Yeah, yeah. I literally could not do it. I mean, if I could do it, we would not be sitting here today. <laughs> yeah, you fought too hard to get out from where you were to, exactly. to just settle so for that. Yeah, I needed something that tied up my entire mind. I needed something that left like no CPU threads <laughs> for anything else so that I could be focused and I could work hard and I could discover things and learn things. And I, and I realized that that's when I feel whole. That's when I don't want to kill myself. That's when I don't want to. And it all clicked and it became my art practice. It became my profession. <laughs> it helped me build a good, comfortable life for which I'm immensely grateful. Um, and it allowed me to discover who and what I am and what I'm capable of. So that's another gift. Sometimes I think, you know, life tears us down and, and, and um, like, how do you build muscle by tearing it down? And I, and I feel I, like life did tear me down, but I built a lot of muscle. I think that's, um, you know, a lot of 
these aspects to, you know, an artist's story is it kind of goes overlooked or, you know, you can see their work or see where they're curating, but getting this type of context and people, you know, where their growth comes from, I think is important to hear. I've, uh, something I've always said, but um, I appreciate you sharing that. That's, um, you know, context that's much needed. It's important to know when you, I mean, you look at works like David and Goliath, which I saw a video on that you did and it was, it's wonderful. And like the, the AR aspects of your work are phenomenal. And like, I, I just don't even know how you get started in something like that, that early. Cause it feels like you're a pioneer of a lot of these techniques. Like, do you discover these on your own or are other people like kind of messing around? They're like, Hey, Marjan, have you seen like this kind of stuff before? Or like, do you come up with it out of the blue? Like, how do you, some, how are you introduced? Some of it is, yeah. Some of it I come up with on my own. Some of it, you know, the industry comes up <laughs> with it, you know, and I work with it. I think with that, with the digital and, and with the internet, there's a sort of like collaborative aggregated approach to everything. So sometimes like I'm working on a style of animation right now that, that I'm kind of, I, I still haven't perfected it, but I'm playing around with it. And it's, uh, it, it happened because I also teach and, you know, a lot of my students, like one of their, like, this is a thing they do, okay? They take anime and they re-edit it to hip hop, okay? And then okay. they all compete with each other over who's done like a cooler thing. And I kind of don't look at that as, you know, I'm like, why don't you do your own work? <laughs> like instead of remixing anime to like hip hop. But I respect that it's their thing, you know? And they always like showing me. And so I'm always looking at it and I'm going, you know, what would be cool if you could do this and that? And then we go, can you animate that? And I'm like, yeah. As now they wrote you in. Text, I'm going to sit down and animate that. But so sometimes it's like that too, where it can be like a super casual conversation. And then, you know, six months of testing I'll, later, I'm like, okay, I think I have this working. So sometimes it happens that way too. Uh, like there was a new a fact I started to work with as of September in some of my animations that I've done since that has been in progress for a year and a half. I got the idea by actually looking at a movie, <laughs> not even an anime, it was a movie. And it was just like, kind of like, a, a, there was like kind of like this weird lens effect and, and the lens effect didn't even show me the effect, but somehow in my imagination, I saw it. And I'm like, I wonder if I can do that. And so I sat down to try to do that and I couldn't. And so it took me like, like six months to test with the notes to see if I could line up the notes to do that. And it didn't work. And I finally asked on a high-end 3D CG question. And one of the programmers for the program that I use actually said, oh, you should be using this node. And then everybody in the group was like, that's what that node does. Like none of us We've never used that, that node. node. We never used it. And it was like, total revelation for the entire group and, and and so I used it that work it still wasn't the effect I still needed many more months of testing until I got it working so sometimes it's like that it's it can be a really lengthy process before I go from something I see uh to something I can do can you explain the GAN technology that is in use in some of those pieces well, I don't use a lot of GANs. I use GANs usually as background elements, not as the primary elements. But um, GANs are gener generative adversarial networks, and they're actually a type of machine learning. Um, and so it's really about training AI on data sets. And what 
these data sets consist of is visuals. Think of them as JPEGs. Now these JPEGs could be people's faces. Uh, they could be classical painting. They could be science fiction painting. I mean, Wombo, the, the mobile app, for instance, uh, has like a Dali set and they have, you know, uh, Studio Ghibli sets. They have sets after popular uh, visual styles. So those are really about machine learning and AI being trained on data sets. And there are a lot of artists who do that. And they'll take, I don't know, a library of, uh, like Rafik will, might work with classical architecture. So he'll train uh, his machine learning on let's say 500 images of uh, Greek and Roman uh, architecture. As the machine learning tries to learn how to replicate that, it can't always do a very good job. <laughs> so what it ends up doing is creating a lot of artifacting or sometimes interesting artistic creative things or a degree of ambiguity. So a lot of the GAN art that you see is really about machines learning how to do art really. Sometimes doing it well, sometimes not so well. But even when they don't do them so well, sometimes I think it's similar to when artists don't paint well, but create a really compelling visual. So right. I think there's an aspect of that to GANs that you have to understand. What you're really seeing is the failure of AI <laughs> in delivering high quality design. But it becomes interesting in its own way. So I usually, when I work with GANs, I use them in the background. Uh, but I don't use them much in the figures that I do in animate them. So I sort of populate the scene or the backdrops with them. It's just fascinating, like having AI be part of the art that you create at this point, like having robots for a better sense, of, like no better word to use, but like they are helping in a way produce a piece of, you know, the background, which is, could you imagine that when you first started making art that one day AI was going to be helping you populate the well, background? You know, this is the weird part because, you know, my younger brother, Dr. Bob Akhmoadam, um, was a pioneer of machine learning and facial recognition. Uh, and he did his, uh, he was part of the MIT uh, Media Lab in the 1990s that pioneered uh, facial recognition and machine vision. And a lot of his pioneering work also went into the creation of GANS. He was a uh, he was at JPL NASA at the time of his passing. So it's starting in the 90s only because of my brother's pioneering work with machine vision. I was fully aware of machine vision long before other people were. Uh, not because I was working with it myself, but because he was working with it. Wow. Um, and um, so I, based on what my brother used to tell me at that time, I, I kind of understood that someday this would happen. And uh, it's interesting because, I mean, he passed away 10 years ago, tragically. But, uh, you know, the new Mars rover, the Mars rover 2, uh, is actually using his machine vision uh, development work in terms of analyzing what his cameras are seeing and being able to navigate. Oh. Um, yeah, so I mean, that's a different type of machine vision. No, but, but the idea similar to the stuff that's used for art. I mean, you have to sort of look at like the data sets could really be anything. I mean, it right. doesn't always have to be art. You can train machine learning, can be trained on a variety of like, for instance, you look at the AIs that are doing voices now, they're trained on voice, you know. So the data sets that machine learning are trained on can really be any type of data, not necessarily JPEGs or visuals or art. And you were introduced to this in the 90s, you said? Yeah, my brother was doing the pioneering work with that at that time. Wow. Like, I feel like if I learned that in the 90s, that would have, like, broke my brain. <laughs> well, I wasn't working with it back then. I was just doing 3D. 
but, but just knowing it exists, you know, like, yeah, knowing it existed. Yeah. 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 Just down to like, okay, you're going to unlock your, uh, computer that's in your pocket with your, with facial recognition within 15 years. What are you even talking about? <laughs> um, that is crazy. That's some crazy perspective just to put the time on it because, you know, you know, the, 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 uh, my brother's PhD dissertation, which has the highest number of dissertations in the field of facial recognition, the program that he wrote at MIT for his PhD was then sold to the NSA. And it's the foundation, <laughs> it's the basis for what NSA uses for facial recognition. So, you know, whenever I'm traveling and like going to London or coming back, and you know, so I, do I just amazing. used one. And I'm like, there, there's my brother's technology. Wow. That's tracking me through this line, you know? Wow. So, he's yeah. always there with you that's nice yeah I you know so nfts like how did was that like something you just came across because you are so digitally native or no. was that something that came out of the blue no for you too? that's a, that's the interesting part is no <laughs> i, I kind of have to be introduced to it i mean i sort of was aware of crypto punks when when they happened but only because it became a th- like kind of like a bit of a meme on the internet that people bought right. these JPEGs for a hundred bucks. And so almost every blog had a story about it. So naturally I saw that and didn't think twice about it. But I was already doing these art hacks on Instagram and many of them had gone you know, viral with millions of views on art channels like Nowness and you know some of the other big art channels on Instagram. I guess the work was out there and a lot of people were looking at it. And then I think it was basically around January or February, 2020, right before the pandemic lockdown, this guy DM me on Twitter and I was barely a Twitter user. Um, I mean, I was total like visit Twitter once a month just to like tweet like six things I did and then leave. <laughs> I was just not into Twitter. Uh, but um, now because of NFTs, I'm forced to to spend time in Twitter prison, as I call it. I'm not it's a tough. huge fan. I'm not yeah. a huge fan. But anyways, um, and maybe we can talk about why later. But um, so this guy literally DM me and said, will you please tokenize your art so I can collect you? Because I'm a huge fan. <laughs> and you're like, what? And I'm like, a token? You know? <laughs> I'd actually Google that. So I had to actually read about it. And I thought, what an interesting idea. But I immediately liked the idea. And I will tell you why. Because for many years, like I would go to such great lengths to make video art objects out of my animations to be able to sell them. And they wouldn't sell. Like the only thing I would sell were like the 2D prints. So I always felt like, you know, you, you know, I worked the hardest on my animations. <laughs> And you really can't sell them. Everybody wants a print. And finally, maybe this is the way I can finally sell my animation. Video prints. Yeah, because my prints always sell well. Collectors always wanted those. Collectors still want those. But the animations was was the animations for me were the heart of what I did. And it always kind of felt like a little weird that the most important thing I do is the most unsellable thing I do you know, as fine arts work. So that kind of always hurt me. So the second I started to research it, I was like, wow, I wonder if I can actually sell animations this way now. So, um, you know, I, and then the lockdown happened and I had a bunch of projects. So I said, you know what, I went, over the summer, I'll work on it. And so over the summer, I did two pieces derived from my art hacks and went on super rare September of uh, 2020 and uh, before people. So a uh, 
according to Colburn from the Museum of Crypto Art, that means I'm an OG because yep, you know, exactly. you're before people, you're an OG. It's like, oh, good. So we were wondering what that delineation was. Now we know. That's the it's moment. Basically, if you came into the space before the before people, you're an OG. So it's like, you know, BP and AP, you know, before people and after people. I like BP. Is, That's is perfect. The, is the cross line. And um, so, and, and I, and I think, you know, I had, I came on with two animations that uh, the first one was taking the knee in solidarity with BLM protest last summer. That piece, that NFT is sold uh, into the third market already. And it was in the uh, uh, proof of art, a brief history of digital art to NFTs, which was the first uh, art museum exhibition of NFTs. What city was that in? Yeah, in Linz, Austria, at the Francisco Carillon. It's like this mansion um, in, in Linz, Austria. And uh, that exhibition actually was last summer. And there's a fine arts book for that exhibition, which is considered also as the first fine arts book about NFT, fine, art, fine arts uh, NFTs. Proof of Art, A Brief History of Digital Art uh, to NFTs, curated by Jesse Damiani, who's, you know, um, major curator and writer in XR. He, he wrote for Forbes about XR for many years. Um, and I know Jesse because uh, he sort of reached out to me uh, around 2018 and he's, he's written about my work in Forbes and you know also other things. He's curated me in other shows too. So yeah, that exhibition was actually quite a big deal. And the book, I ha actually have the book, um, is, is really amazing because it's a document, of not just my work, but so many of the other NFT artists in the space. And, um, you know, and I think that it's, it's, uh, it, it, it is really important to, to really document what has happened. Like there, there was something happening on Twitter today uh, between a faculty member, uh, an academic who was arguing that maybe there is no distinction between digital art and crypto art. And Josie Bellini, who's, you know, an OG mm -hmm. of crypto art and just has the wonderful new uh, collection out too. Josie was saying there's a huge difference between digital art and crypto art. And I sort of jumped in and agreed that there's, you know, I've, I'm a digital, I've done both digital art and crypto art. And I agree with Josie. There is a difference. And the difference is they're not just that they're different ecosystems and different ways of collecting and buying and selling art, but it's also different styles, different aesthetics, and you know, different understanding altogether. That's a good point. So I'll I've always thought of digital art as this much larger, broader thing that could or could not have anything to do with NFTs, really. And then crypto art to me seemed like a subject more than a type of art where the art the, it's actually about the crypto movement more so than it being tokenized. But yeah. is that like, so you're saying it, it's even more different than that, really? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Because I think that just from, you know, my experience being in this space, it's first and foremost, a rejection and simultaneous rebellion against uh, the existing practices of the art world. And I think if you look at anything from X copy to Rob Ness's trash art, it's, it's really about taking aspects of internet meme culture, um, other ideas that are very contemporary and now, and using digital tools to make art with it in a way that's very much rebelling and re rejecting the established art world. Um, that's a good way to put it. 
No, nice. I mean, you see it, you see it, you feel the energy, you hear it from the artists. So it's, it's definitely a quantifying aspect of it. I, I got that sense when just looking at your page and like, you know, you, even like your tab tour on your work, like crypto art is one of your, you know, one of your, how you classify your work. And I was looking through your super collection in the um, crypto art rides the bull. I got that sense from that piece, you know, it's pretty directly telling you and just kind of, you know, analyzing kind of the setting around it. And then, um, you know, kind of how the animation was set. It's a perfect way to kind of summarize, I think, exactly what you were explaining just now, because that's kind of an unavoidable aspect to what it is, because without that internet culture, meme culture, however you want to put it, you know, this space wouldn't, be what it is. So yeah. Um, yeah, the influence is everywhere and you can see it in your work. You see people yeah. rework a lot of like um, Renaissance stuff or like actual painting, oil paintings from back in the day where they're reorganizing those as a more digitally native version of that in like collage formats and other things. Even Slime Sunday, our friend, uses a lot of what look to be old paintings from the 1500s that are updated with contemporary pieces in it. Yeah, I think remixing old art or classical art more accurately is definitely a certain certain approach in crypto art. I think there's different approaches. I think yeah. there's one approach is 2D illustration. And I think Josie Bellini, um, I think a lot of other artists who do sort of illustration. And here the illustration is very digital. It is different than uh, approaches to illustration with traditional media. So the second you look at them, you understand this is Illustrator and Photoshop. <laughs> right. And right out of the gate, you know that. It's not a painting. It's Photoshop or Illustrator, period. And then there's the other approach, which is the remix of classical art approach that you talked about. And here there's, uh, there's like elaborate, you know, uh, elaborate reanimated paintings as GIF or sometimes long form animation with music. And, uh, and then also still images that are kind of like collages and remixes of classical art. And I think then, we all... oh, go and right then you get into the abstract works. And then here you have abstract works that are painted versus abstract works that are AI GAN. There's a lot of GAN collages right now. And then you get into photo remixes and photo collages. And then you have like my world, which is 3D. And then I think when you get into 3D, there's different approaches too. There's the there's 3D illustration, which is you know very similar to high-end CG on ArtStation kind of approach. So it's more situated in illustration as opposed to fine arts, let's say. Then you get all the people doing you know what I call simulations gone wrong in Houdini, <laughs> which is its own sort of subgenre of NFT 3D, you know. Um, and then you get uh, really interesting experiments with 3D CG fine arts, and that's kind of like where I, that's my end of the pool, if you may, my, my end of the crypto swap. (laughs) We always like to ask people who come from the traditional art background, like their view on how curation is working today, because it's not left up to the traditional curators from the gallery perspective anymore. And you see people on Twitter who are curators and, you know, collectors themselves, like by buying who they buy are curating in a way as well. And, Kind of uplifting those voices and like what are your thoughts on the shifting landscape of curation the, the landscape is shifting when i first came in in 2020 um you know there were i think the collectors then were were really collecting interesting works 
Like if you sort of look at a lot of those early collectors and their collections, they're wild. Those collections are wild. I mean, you're looking at it and going, what the hell? And I'm and I can personally guarantee you five to 10 years from now, you'll you will look at those collections and still say that's wild. Yeah. Because that's how wild they were. But if you sort of look at um, in the post Beeple era, things started to change. And I'd say as of last summer, uh, the kind of collectors that moved into the space are more about investments. So they're collecting influencers. So when you sort of look at their collections, you're not gasping and you're not going, what the hell? I mean, that magic and that wonder that came from looking at some of the early OG collectors as collections is gone because they're just kind of collecting anything that is done by anyone that's kind of trending or is an influencer or whatever. So in that regard, you know, I feel like, you know, we suddenly had a new art movement and a revolution that was breaking away from the precedence of the art world. And we just kind of went back to doing things the way they were. <laughs> you know, so for a second there, we had this like mandate of the century and now it's back to, okay, it's back to who you know matters more than what you do. How do you think like the profile picture NFTs have played into that? Because I feel like the influx of that, which is a lot like gambling, has pulled in those types of collectors that are maybe dabbling in art or using PFPs as a way to amass enough ETH to actually buy like what they're looking for sometimes. But I, I, how, are, how do you feel about NFTs being used not just for digital art, but also for maybe things that are a little more speculative? Well, I mean, the the I I heard a figure the other day that the entire NFT market, including the PFP projects and the various collections, were down by eighty five percent. Whether wow. that's true or not, that was on another Twitter space that somebody brought mm-hmm. it up, and I was shocked. <laughs> well, I knew the number was high. I, I had a feeling the percentage was high, but I had no idea it was eighty five percent. But um, so the the downtrending of the market, and and you know, crypto. And NFTs oscillate just like the stock market does and just like the art market does, although they do it much faster than the art market. You know, it's so market. fast around here. I mean, here. it might oh. take like four years in the art market, takes like four days in NFTs, you know. But um, so the, the, I think that uh, a lot of collectors have said that the PFP projects and the one-on-ones were their gateway drug to one-on-one I mean, a lot of the collections and the PFPs were their gateway drug to one-on-one NFTs. So on the plus side, collections and PFP projects have brought in a lot of people into the one-on-one NFT collecting world. So that's a plus. Yeah. Um, On the negative side, I think they sort of create this expectation that if I buy something for 0.1 ETH today, I should get 50 ETH for it two months later. <laughs> so and those are outrageous. That doesn't happen. Yeah. If you don't see the graph on OpenSea going up, yeah. you know, you wasted your ETH. <laughs> and then you got to dump it immediately for exactly. less than what you bought so it for. On, on yeah. some levels, it's created this dependence on something that's different than art collecting. So that's the downside, I would say. Do you think that that forces artists to feel like they have to provide some sort of utility beyond just, hey, I made this beautiful art? Yeah. You know, I'll tell you what, I'm doing the PFP head project. <laughs> so like for three months, you know, every month somebody hits me up, oh, we'd, we'd like to collaborate on a PFP project. And these are teams that, you know, they're teams. They already do these collections and 
you know, they, they got the community manager, they got the Discord server, they got the desk and the marketing team, blah, blah, blah. So they're like corporations almost, you know? Yep. And, but every time they've hit me up, I, I haven't had the chance. And, and I'm like, oh, I don't do that sort of thing. But this last group, I took a meeting with them and the two founders, the first thing they told me is like, by the way, I discovered you because my wife loves you. All she does is say, you have to work with her. Her work is so awesome. And I was like, thank you. And he's like, and then the other guy said, I'm, I love your work because my sister, <laughs> it just turned into this, like all the women in their lives were like, you have to work with her. You have no idea how awesome her work is. And I guess, you know, I fell for it. <laughs> so it's happening. Just to show you, I can be easy, right? I totally yeah. fell for that. Like, oh, I was so touched by that. And then they said, we really want a 3D head project from a female artist. And the thing is, you know what? I can do it and I could probably do an excellent job on it. And I, I decided I want to do it as a flex <laughs> on behalf of women because, you know, and, and I wanted to also do it as a challenge for myself, you know, so yeah, I'm working on it, but I, I'm, I'm sort of, I've done some tasks. They're kind of happy with the results. I'm going to probably start production in April, but like my idea is the, these females are not like world of women NFT, although I love those women, I'm, I'm, I work with the world of women uh, NFT team. I did the Davos uh, World Economic Forum drop with, with them in last January with Guy of the Metaverse. And uh, so I love that their work, but like, that's not my style. <laughs> right. So I like this idea of creating something that was pop art. So it is a realistic head, but imbuing it with things that are different and unusual in that way that I'm exploring the possibilities in 3D CG. So I like the idea of half me and half this existing practice mm -hmm. and, and, and kind of like blending that and seeing where that goes, because I sometimes feel like, um, you know, I, I, you know, people always say that, that I, I probably outproduce most artists half my age. And it's true. I, I do a lot of work. And they ask me, how do you do it? How do you manage to do this much work after so much time? And I'm like, I'm always open to inspiration. And 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 that keeps it alive for me. You know, that that like, you know, I go like, oh, I've never done that before, a PFP project. You know, suddenly that really excites me. Instead right. of I have to make sure to do the right pieces. So the collector, you know, like that kind of thing, I start to get really bored very fast. And that kind of kills the joy of art for me. But when I suddenly have a new idea and it wakes me up and I'm like, yeah, I want to try that. That's how, that's how I keep it going. That's how I keep it going by making sure I am available to inspiration and in my practice rather than to this idea of a career. It makes sense. And I feel like we had this conversation recently, but it's like got to be hard for an artist you know, I'm assuming that you're getting approached with those types of opportunities with those groups, you know, that are you know, almost in a corporate setting now, but curious to how people like yourself see those types of projects, you know, is it a challenge? Is it something that you just steer away from? Because as an artist, I feel like it's almost like an experiment where, you know, you won't know unless you try and like, this is a, a kind of, you know, a window to take advantage, to strike, however you want to say it, but, you know, there might not be another opportunity to do that. Um, so I'm always curious and like, it's something that we've recently discussed, like how does an artist see these types of projects and you're, you're seeing more and more take the, their creative ideas and then, you know, express it through that form. So it's just, 
kind of just becoming another form of distribution in a way. I, I like the artist led projects, you know, like you'll see a lot of the PFP projects that are obviously just developers that went on Fiverr and paid somebody exactly. 500 bucks. And- I mean, a lot of the stuff is such bad, cheesy illustration too. And there's a part of me says, you could find artists that are 10 times better on ArtStation. I mean, what is wrong with you? Right. And yeah. it wouldn't necessarily cost more, you know, I hate to say it, than the people you're getting on Fiverr. But it just shows you that a lot of the projects are low effort. And the problem is that this is what I think. I think the more money goes towards low effort pro- uh, projects, the more the long-term value in NFTs decreases. 100%. It sucks out the liquidity of the market. Because it's too. like it becomes kitsch and everybody goes, oh, this is really gross. I mean, what's the average length of something cool on the internet? Three months tops. So yeah. you have to be really careful with these things because as much as people think, oh, this is going to be, you know, OpenSea is always going to do $5 billion every week or something, right? <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, how many big platforms have come and gone, you know? Yeah. So you have to sort of take everything with a grain of salt when it comes to the internet. Have you done additions before or are you stuck to mostly one-of-one one art on Super? Well, Rare? I actually did um, some additions with the glitching Juno Monetas on Institute. <laughs> Um, Juno Moneta was the Roman goddess of minting and money. She's actually the origins of the word money and minting, by the way. That's awesome. So, yeah, the fort where the Roman Empire minted its money, the guardian was Juno, the sculpture of Juno. So I took that head sculpture in 3D and glitched her every which way there was as the DeFi revolution. And every time she spins with the glitch, there's like gold veining in the middle that kind of shows, uh, you know, mining for gold. <laughs> Right. In general. Um, and so to me, it was sort of like, yeah, this is glitching the existing order of finance that like the existing mm-hmm. financial financial world goes back to the Roman Empire, who minted money and created a global currency. Oh. And, and it was all centralized. It was all centralized and it came out of this fort. <laughs> So for me to go and glitch that, the goddess of that for it is to say, this is the DeFi revolution. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, the events of, in our world in the last year has, have made us realize, I mean, you know, the time just did the thing with the, the Tali Buterin and uh, the, the, the inventor of uh, Ethereum. And, you know, he said he's really concerned that he now realizes Ethereum is much more important because of the abuses of very overreaches of governments, et cetera. And I agree with them. We're seeing in our world firsthand how people can use centralized finance to uh, punish political opponents and punish dissent. And um, so as far as we're concerned, and as far as Vitaly, Vitaly is concerned, as far as I'm concerned, the survival of democracy, open society, open debate, free speech, all of these things is now hanging on decentralization Mm. of finance, and then eventually the big tech platforms too. Decentralization of internet, uh, social media communications and everything else. It's crazy to think about. It just had me going back to like, okay, how did we become, you know, involved? And it's just buying like art that we liked based off of the idea, not even realizing like, you know, we're like, you know, you're buying digital currency just to buy the art. But then there's this whole backstory to what does drive it and you know when we were buying stuff around the time what you started minting was late 2020 you know ethereum was like two three four hundred bucks yeah in eth and you know you're buying a, a stack of eth and not realizing like okay like you're furthering this decentralization exa- like. exactly and, and you're more like 
I started as a medium to, 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 to start collecting art. And, um, you know, you just kind of learn the stuff as you go. And it's, it's opening to kind of where the end game is, or, or at least like the path that we need to get there. It's a, it's a weird path that we took because we weren't into cryptocurrency before NFTs. So our friend slime Sunday was a premier digital artist on nifty gateway. And at his first drop, we were like, Oh, this is cool. Let's support our friend and buy some NFTs that led into buying cryptocurrency and then getting deeper into like buying stuff on Ethereum and then Tezos. And like, we've went down this weird rabbit hole, which actually started with art and not the money, which is an odd way to get into NFTs. I think, because a lot of people probably got onboarded because they already knew about crypto. A lot of the big buyers had a lot of Ethereum when they bought it, when it was $12, you know, and that's how they could afford to buy such great pieces of art. Yeah. No, I mean, um, oh, by the way, I meant to tell you, I still, I also have an addition. There's still a few pieces left for one ETH each of uh, one of my glitched Odalisk, one of my art hacks with a, with a sort of Gan Trekker. It was a Gan hat that kind of looked like a multiracial Mr. Spock. Um, <laughs> it was like this amazing accident that happened. It was sort of like if Mr. Spock could be every race and still really weird, but still kind of <laughs> like a, so that's why it's called the Gan Trekker. Um, but it has my, one of my females, the glitched Odalisk in the foreground, and it's actually the art hack from uh, Art Basel last, uh, last December. Oh, nice. And because Rarible was doing female creators week and they asked me to do one of my hacks and sell it. So that's actually an addition, low cost addition. It's on Rarible? It's on Rarible, yeah. Okay. People can go check that out. Yeah. And right now I'm in the, um, you know, Artsy, the big art website. They did an, their first NFT drop, I think, you know, a month or two ago. So they're now doing a second NFT drop for uh, Women's History Month. And I'm part of that drop. We just nice. did the Twitter spaces. The opening is tonight at Vellum LA Gallery oh, nice. uh, in Los Angeles on Melrose. And the NFTs auction has started on for uh, Artsy as well. Nice. And uh, actually in Vellum opening tonight, there's a 50 foot video wall of my glitch goddesses. <laughs> gallery so if you're in LA I mean well I don't know when you're going to air this but <laughs> one week from today yeah huh? one week from today oh, well, the show will still be up but catch it at Vellum LA on Melrose and today I also did the Twitter spaces earlier for I'm part of the women's history month drop also opening today everything's happening today for uh, first dips curated by Sparrow who's an OG crypto artist and one of the co-founders of Woka uh, women in crypto art organization. So I have a JPEG in that actually. And then last but not least opening today, I'm also part of fashion week in the metaverse in Decentraland. And so this is the first fashion week in, you know, the metaverse, and it's going to apparently become a recurring annual thing. You know, so there's fashion week in New York and Milan and Paris, and then in Decentraland. <laughs> And you have another gallery. From now onwards, that's going to be a thing, you know? Don't, don't you have another gallery in Decentraland right now where you're like the whole floor? In yeah, somehow? in Museum of Contemporary Art, Mokta. And for this, I have pieces in uh, David Cash's gallery. He's one of the organizers of Fashion Week uh, in, in Decentraland. And that show opened today also. So yeah. I'll have to check that out. I think Slime Sunday is actually going to be in L.A. Right, either he's there now or he's going next week. So then you should go see the 50-foot wall of... Uh, yeah. Also, keep in mind, you know, Vellum LA has these like amazing um, Luma canvas displays and you've never seen anything like it. These are not standard video displays. I have to tell people, 
uh, like you have to go and physically see this in person. You've never seen this at Best Buy. Trust me. <laughs> I can't wait so, till those screens are. So they're plasma. They're museum grade plasma screens. So that's how they show the art. So this isn't just you know another art show with a bunch of video displays for NFTs. This is really seeing um, high quality fine arts work uh, on some of the top museum grade display technology that we have in our world. I love that because I, I hate seeing pictures from galleries where, you know, it's just like some TVs turned sideways and, you know, none of the aspect ratios are right. And it just, it kind of hurts me inside. To but, see you that. know, that's a big problem. But right? you brought up the aspect. I deal with this all the time because when I do my glitch goddesses, I make sure to do them nine by 16. So anybody can sort of display them because I, because a lot of people want to display my art. And also because I like the idea that my art could be displayed. Right. But then when you do nine by 16, you know, all the NFT sites end up cropping the middle as a square. And then if you put it on Twitter and other social media, unless I put it on a square shape car a card, you're never going to see it. So it's like a battle between what I call NFT optimized sizes and aspect ratio versus the reality of everybody has the nine, 16 by nine or nine by 16 ultimately display. There are custom size displays, but the total percentage of the market that owns them is is 0, 0.00 something probably. You know, it has to be like handmade for those specific exactly. aspect ratios. Yeah. So it's it's a tough call because you know as an artist, I don't want to just do internet. You know, I I, I love it that people want to hang this stuff in their homes. I absolutely love that. Um, so I'm always like pushing to make it for 16 by nine knowing full well that there's a lot of disadvantages to social media promotion and how things appear on the you know front page of an nft platform and so on and so forth it seems like a good segue to what you were talking about earlier with twitter and social media and how it's just hell being in, in the twitter verse i'll be honest with you i don't i'm a little uncomfortable with the with the the censorship of twitter right you know which is excessive um, and, and, you know, I'm kind of with Voltaire. I may disagree with you, but I have to respect your, I mean, I will fight for, I may not fight for your right to say it, but at least I'm willing to respect it, or at least say that, look, if you, if, if my political enemy is now free to say what they're saying, or what they want to say, someday I won't be free right. to say it. You have it's, to draw words, the line. We're all in the same boat. So we have to kind of have some awareness that our social media platforms is, it's one boat that we're all in. And if you wanna kick people out, then be prepared for getting kicked out yourself. And I think that the dream, I'm, and also keep in mind, I'm part of internet 1.0. So I'm just like shocked at like- this, Is internet one? You know, when the new CEO of Twitter says, the new CEO of Twitter says, our job is not to protect free speech, but to curate the right conversations. I'm going like, you know, like, what have you done to the utopian vision of the early internet? And back then, legacy media was so locked up that the internet became the open forum for discussion. And so to see the open forum for discussion turn into, you know, whatever. So in the, I'd like to see, you know what, my dream, here's my dream social media platform. I really think Elon Musk, and I say Elon Musk because he is respected by a wide swath of people from all political backgrounds. Right. 
So it's not like a left or right wing person starting a social media platform, which I think is problematic. Someone like Elon is so kind of like his own creation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that if he does it, you kind of know that this is going to be a place for everyone. So I think he should do a social media platform. I'm all for it. Let's get him because on. Because he has, do you know what I'm saying? He's already a rebel. He's yeah. already an independent thinker. You know, he's not owned by any political side, you know, and you know, he speaks his mind. So who better to create? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yep. A, I a think that's media perfect. Platform than him. So there's the censorship side and then there's the algorithm side where it feels like you have to play a game on Twitter to like have your tweet seen sometimes. And it's like, it's kind of gross the way it's, it leans towards, you know, so many artists would tell me, Oh, you know, your metrics would improve if you would just do like some more authentic, some do rants and this and that. And I was like, (laughs) look, I get so many comments my metrics on Instagram and Facebook are great. And nobody knows anything about me because it's just my work. Right. That's how I like it. But this idea that I owe you some, like, look, I don't, I love doing interviews like this and talking candidly. I'm not a closed person. I'm not a hermit. You know, I mean, look at the way I look, right? <laughs> <laughs> not a hermit. No, I'm an confirm. open person, but I'm not into this idea that I owe the public daily fucking confessionals. Yeah. I it, think. It, I'll tell you why. I think that's a real problem in terms of your own mental well-being also. There has to be boundaries of privacy, of intimacy. And um, and I think this push to make everybody treat social media like group therapy is ultimately creating uh, a really unwell society. Totally. I, and I honestly think like it's hard to craft a thought and like and then you just put it out there because like. I don't know. You have time to think about it. And like when you're just kind of, you know, coming off the cuff, you're actually developing your thought in real time. And then thinking about what you want to say can sometimes just be like, I don't know, just like a class, classic overthink situation. But yeah, I think, I don't know. Larry can't even open Discord. Like, I, I it can't. gives him so much anxiety. He can't do it. <laughs> I can't. And I, no, that's but I like, watch a lot of artists kind of do this sort of daily confessional thing just to get more likes. And yeah. You know, I sort of like I can't do that and I don't want to do that to myself. And there's a part of me says, look, if if on some levels I like Instagram better because the art that I see in my feed is top notch. Mm-hmm. And I feel as if the people who find my work and DM me and comment on it are people who really appreciate the work that I do. So it's not about me as an identity or I'm a this or I'm a that. It's about the work that I do. And and I think that because I'm such a workaholic and so, you know, so driven to do really quality work, that's what I value. Like if you tell me, oh, we only care about your work because your identity X, Y, and Z, I feel like, well, you just totally disrespected my whole life. Right. (laughs) Everything. worked for like you just immediately told me that it was all for nothing it reduced me down to three data points about myself exactly so i want you to sort of look and appreciate how much i put into my work before you notice who and what i am and i think this focus on identity i mean i hope like everything else this this too shall pass and we'll get tired and bored and there'll be some kind of blowback because we know that's how how we seek to evolve you know natural progression um i mean i don't know maybe this is like the 1950s all over again 
So we have to go through a decade of this and then there's gonna be a 1960s of some sort where there's gonna be an outright uh, rebellion and rejection of all this closure of conversation and all this closure of culture and, you know, everything. So we're looking forward to the 30s. All right. Yeah. The 30s are the new 60s. Let's go. Yeah. Well, you know, the 30s were, pro- I mean, the 30s were also a scary time. I mean, look at the what's going on in our world. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. A lot of stuff going on right now. I mean, you think like, you know, do, do, do you think that it, like somebody was telling me they're afraid they're going to see China landing in California in their lifetime. And, you know, I had to like stop and think about it and go, you know, just because it hasn't happened yet, <laughs> yeah. there's no reason to assume that's going to endure indefinitely, you know? Yeah. And put in perspective what a, a lifetime is now at, at this point, like we don't even know. I mean, people could be living to 120, like by the time we get that old, like, I don't know how healthcare is going to progress, but everything seems to be exponentially changing now. You know, that's, um, there's a Digerati, someone who's digitally literate, um, and who's a faculty member at um, NYU Ray Sharkey, who writes about digital culture and, and et cetera. And Ray Sharkey like w- defines the inherent tendency of the technology. Like what is the inherent tendency of the technology since the first stone knife till today? And he says the inherent tendency of the technology is towards speed and efficiency. So the first stone knife was really about speed and cutting things and attacking things and killing things or whatever, and efficiency in doing it. So when you fast forward forward to our world, that speed and efficiency has increased exponentially. Compounds over time. Yeah. Because you have new tools to use. Oh, we might have lost you. Maybe we're offline. This is the first freeze. Oh, no, we lost internet. I hope that didn't mess anything up there. <laughs> so anyways, the, the speed and efficiency is the inherent tendency of the technology. And so, yeah, from now onwards, the faster part of everything's going to get even faster. So true. And I got to commend you because that was a seamless jump back in right there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really hope that didn't mess up any of that. I, I just wanted to let you know, you both have these like really cool expressions. That so did you. <laughs> I, I know it's like that's like it took us. Whoa, what happened? Was, like, was it our internet or your internet? I couldn't figure I it out. I don't know whose like, internet it was. Yeah, God, these we're tools, connected now. These tools need to get better. Where are you, by the way? <laughs> we're not too far away. We're um just north of Boston, so I think you're in oh, Brooklyn, awesome. right? Yeah, I'm actually in Brooklyn. Yeah. yeah, it's a great place. Yep. So when you locked down during the pandemic and started, you know, over the summer looking into the NFT stuff, like. What was New York City like? Well, you know, New York City was kind of uh, very shut down. I mean, I, I think by the summer, slowly they had allowed restaurants to take over the sidewalks. <laughs> and then everybody was like, well, why didn't we do this before? It's so cool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> do it in Europe then, for hundreds but, of years now. Exactly. And then by the fall, they had all the outdoor heaters. So it was like, hey, we now have this down to a fine science. Yeah. So, and then everybody built all these like, you know, rainproof structures. So when you walk around, it's amazing the the structures on all the sidewalks. Um, but, you know, I, I where I was, things didn't change that much because I'm in downtown Brooklyn, but I feel as if Manhattan changed a lot. Like the, the shocking part was Manhattan yeah. and, and, you know, Canal Street, all the storefronts were, you know, just 
closed out and everything was covered in graffiti. And I was like, wow, we're going back to 1980s New York. And, you know, crime wise, I mean, you know, I'll be honest with you. I'm constantly looking over my shoulder when I'm out at night. And I hadn't been doing that for years. And, you know, if I, if I sense someone is speeding up behind me, I immediately like cross over to the, I, I mean, I'm like, like I'm totally like paranoid and I'm generally speaking, not a paranoid person, but I've had a couple of encounters that have made me sort of kind of like, I'm constantly tense if I'm walking out at night and I'm prepared to run and I'm prepared to move to the other side of the street or, you know, whatever. It's probably yeah. smart to be paranoid like that, but I will give you one piece of solace and I'm a, I'm a big guy. And so when I see a lady walking on the sidewalk and I'm behind her, I kind of want to speed up and get ahead of her so she can feel more comfortable. But you know what? I, I, I think it, most of the time, the speeding thing you're talking about is exactly what's going on. You know, but, like, and then I didn't realize that that's probably causing a lot more stress than necessary. But I, then I don't want to like hang out behind them. Like, <laughs> it's no, a conundrum. But I almost got into trouble because I, because I, I also teach at LIU Brooklyn campus. I'm a college professor also. And I was like late for class and it was 6 p.m. this winter. And so it totally dark. And I'm just going as fast as I can because I'm like late for class, you know, kind of thing. And because uh, I was in production all day. And, and I, there was like a group of young girls, like, you know, maybe three or four of them on the sidewalk. So I walked really fast past them. And they stopped and they started to like shout in a very threatening manner, like really bad things towards me. Oh, F do you think you are? Because they got spooked by me and then they turned. And I literally was going as fast as I could to swipe my card to get past the gates on the campus. And they were like chasing me. And I was, it was like a, something out of an action movie. And they like, <laughs> get it out of the wallet, swipe it, get through this turnstile, get to the safety of the gates on the other side. And they yes. stayed out there continuing their obscenities. So look, I mean, I, I mean, people are on the edge. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of what you see in terms of crime in New York City, it isn't just that, oh, people are out to kill someone or hurt someone or push someone. People are just on the edge and they snap. They snap really fast over the smallest things. And most of what I'm observing is that people are snapping. So yeah. on the subway platform, on the streets, you pass someone too fast, they flip out on you. So a lot of it is people are just, you know, on the edge. Yeah, I feel like too, like there, a lot of the to bring it back to the art side, like I feel like a lot of inspiration for art that will be like stamped in time, you know, from that 2020 window um, will be looked at as some, um, you know, like, like art of its time in a way where we're like, you're kind of marking, you know, what was going on at the time. And, you know, you see that with old, old classic art, Renaissance art, however you want to put it. But um, I feel like that wave of, you know, kind of the tumultuous times that we, we're going through just the country was going through at the time um you know properly depicted scenarios like that i feel like are, are going to be artworks that will be you know kind of bookmarks um for that time. Well, i did a, I, I did a piece quarantine cycles triptych yep. on super rare i don't know if you've seen it that's actually on auction at artsy that's a time capsule if you know the figure is trapped inside and yep. and i have been wanting to animate architecture the same way i animate bodies for a long time but i to me that was really like the visual of being locked down where yep. you know you're trapped in the same space and slowly the space starts to become an extension of you 
And there's this movement in the mind and the movement in the architecture and in the furniture. And, and, and also this sort of quality of, you know, like my only connection to the outside was social media. And there's like a certain, there, there's a certain way of losing touch with reality. Yeah. And, and it's like all the political stuff and this, and, and it's like, there was a point at which I felt like I'm losing my mind. And I tried to animate that because I wanted quarantine cycles to be a time capsule, like you said, yep. like, what was it like to live through this era? And, you know, with the Twitter feed going through the window, yeah. <laughs> political figures running back and forth in your apartment because it's like the social media battles, you know, yes. and, yes, and it's, it's like in the slow kind of uh, loss of um, connection to physical reality. Like we have to remember physical reality has a great grounding effect on us. Mm-hmm. And um, so going out, seeing people, talking to a human being in person is a very different experience than, oh, I have this great social life because I'm on you know, TikTok all day long. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. and so the loss of that kind of drove a lot of us to the, all of us, I would say, to the edge, although unfortunately some people more so than others. Because, you know, I mean, we're looking at more young people died from, you know, overdoses than COVID. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a horrifying thing. Yeah, All cause deaths for 18 to like 40 year olds are, is like the highest it's ever been. And these weren't young people dying from COVID. So like, what, why were they dying? Yeah. And there's heroin overdoses, there's suicide, and there's other causes we haven't quite figured out yet. Or we figured out, we're just not allowed to talk about it. <laughs> right, right. It's been knocked <laughs> but, off of I mean, our look, platform. Anytime events kill a generation of young people, there's something really wrong. That's actually the data that I saw, the insurance company data showed deaths among baby boomers didn't increase as much as deaths for young people. The jump is in the young people. I was going to say the only silver lining I can even think of for COVID is the NFT boom that we saw. Like, I don't, I can't think of anything else that kind of thrived during that time, the way digital art did. Um, well, Zoom thrived. <laughs> Zoom, Zoom. There was uh, Zoom delivery, thrived. like for. NFTs thrived, yeah. Yeah, like Clubhouse was thriving for a little bit. <laughs> Clubhouse briefly, but that, remember when I said the average life of anything on the internet is three months? I was I up in Clubhouse, yeah. perfect example. For three months, it was like the hottest thing imaginable. <laughs> I know because it was exclusive, and someone had to invite you there, and then you needed an iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that. Um, you know, for the most part, we're on the other side of that. And there's a lot of lessons for us to integrate into our lives from the last couple of years that we've been through. And I really just hope time slows down a little bit because it feels like that's also exponentially increasing the older I get. I don't think it was just these last two years, but as I get older, time seems to slip away faster. Well, you know, what? I guess this could be a good concluding point, but, you know, studies have shown that the more time we spend on the digital, the less compassion we have. Hmm. So there's something about compassion that is inherently connected to the physical. And you know, Cicero, the, the great Roman thinker, once said, books are letters to friends we haven't met yet. Hmm. So take a moment to consider, like this is the foundational principle of civilization, this attitude of friendship. Do you know, if I create art, I have to really assume an attitude of friendship towards people I haven't even met yet. Like here, right. I'm going to spend 
two years writing a book. Think about it. I mean, that's like really, but you contrast that to the way people behave on social media. Like my tweets are F used to people I hate or people I disagree with, or, you know, it's like a, there's a shift. So like what we have to do is to figure out a way to reconnect to the civility of civilization. And this is where art and culture play a huge part. And, you know, there's so much art, there's so much visual media that's just superficial, just like clickbait or, you know, uh, written articles are sometimes shallow. And it's like, it's defined as the flatness problem of technology. The technology takes complex nuanced things and flattens them into a thin layer. But the problem is as human beings, we have a need for the profound. We have a need for reflection. Like if you don't process things, like what is sleep? Why do we have to sleep and dream? If you don't dream, you'll develop serious mental problems because you have to process the day's events. We need time to reflect and contemplate. And the arts and culture are part of our sense-making apparatus. So if our sense-making apparatus is all bored apes, not that there's anything wrong with bored apes, but that's all we have, then we're kind of in trouble. You know, I'm in, I'm in favor of a, you know, diverse diet. <laughs> you know, you, you have right. your bored apes, you have this, you have that, but you also have to have the works of substance, depth and meaning. And, and uh, so can NFTs make a difference? Yes, it, through supporting projects that are about that depth and the profound, uh, using patronage to um, support what the what popular internet eyeball culture is not, is yep. that's the traditional role of patronage, um, to make sure that the healthy diet of culture continues. And on that note, people can look forward to your project coming out, which is going to merge the worlds of fine art with this new PFPs. You know, yeah, this PFP that is taking the world by storm at this point. So we're, we're excited to see what comes out of that. Awesome. Thank you. Barjan, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for giving it's us It's been time. great talking to both yeah. of you. You said it's hanging out. I'm like, yeah, we had a great time hanging yeah. out and chatting. Yeah, totally. That's it. Well, we'll let you enjoy the rest of your day. I know you have a thousand things happening right now. So uh, we'll tell Slime to to check that out. Uh, Vellum in LA, right? Yeah. Perfect. Beautiful. This will come out in one week's time. So if you're listening to this now, it's Thursday and it's Thursday right now. <laughs> the show will still be up Thursday. Yeah. Perfect. Awesome. Thank awesome. you very much. Nice Thank you. you. Bye, John. Bye. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. Damn, that's nifty. single line. I sure as hell didn't know that. Fuck Render built a gallery to raise new artist popularity. What a guy. Yeah, man. It's a good guy. To 
much lag like an old man, all his belongings in a single bag. All these things, can't you see? I learned all that's NFT. That's NFT. That's NFT. That's a nifty, nifty NFT. That's nifty. That's NFT. That's a nifty, nifty NFT. That's nifty. That's NFT. That's a nifty, nifty NFT. That's nifty. That's NFT. That's a nifty, nifty NFT. Damn, that's a nifty NFT.